home. And did I turn? Uh, is that recording? Can you double check the camera? I forgot if I pushed the button. I think I pushed the button. Okay. <coughs> Jai Ma. Om. Om Mangalam Guru Devaya Devya Matriksha Mangalam Mangalam Bhakta Brindeviya Sarvalokaya Mangalam Om Stapakaya Chudarmasya Sarvadharma Sarupini Avatara Varishtaya Ramakrishnaya Tenamaha Om Sarashiva Samarambam Shankaracharya Majamam Ashmaracharya Prayantam Vande Gurum Paramparam Om Guru Brahma Guru Vishnu Guru Devo Maheshwara Guru Devo Param Brahman Dasmai Sri Guru Vedamaha Sri Ganesha Sharada Guru Pyura Mahariyu Jai Ma Jai Ma So we're taking a slight detour from our Kali Sahasranama talks. Let's see, sometimes our detours take, an, uh, take a year. <laughs> this is a, I think this is a one day year. I mean, I think the Kali Sahasranama talks were a detour. <laughs> the problem, if you miss an exit, you get on the whole different freeway. It's hard to get off. <laughs> so actually, because uh, today is January 11th, tomorrow, I'm, I'm, I'm smart, it's 12th. <laughs> I'm really good. <laughs> Okay, that's right. So January 12th is the birthday of Swami Vivekananda as per the lunar calendar, the solar calendar by the date, right? So in India, it's celebrated as National Youth Day. Swamiji is very idealistic for the youth. And so there's a big celebration, all, all over India, the celebration, Swami Vivekananda, but specifically the youth. And then his, the ritual observance of his birthday is usually done on the titi, which I think is Saptami or something like that, could be on um, Thursday. I think this coming Thursday is uh, Swami Vivekananda's birthday by the lunar calendar. So <clears throat> last year, same thing. I forget if I think we, we interrupted our normal program to read some, uh, one of, uh, a talk by Swami Vivekananda. I think last year we read a talk on uh, the need for a universal religion or something like that. A very nice discussion. So this is actually in a similar, what I'm reading, the, what I chose to read from is called The Necessity of Religion. And um, in this version, the version I'm reading from right now is Vivekananda, The Yogas and Other Works. It's a beautiful one-volume collection edited by Swami Nikilananda. So that's why I have a similar cover to the Gospel of Ramakrishna, just a different color, same style. And it's, he, I didn't actually, I should have just before, I, my plan before sitting down was to double check whether or not Jnana Yoga, the normal Jnana Yoga starts with this lecture or not, I don't remember. Because sometimes he adds a few things. He, he, edits, he edits a chapter slightly different than the original publications. Uh, but in this version, it's found, it's, a, it's the first lecture in the Swamiji's probably most famous book, Jnana Yoga. And Swami Nikolananda also edits it a little differently. He cleans up the English in his own way. And so it may be, uh, if you're reading, or if you later, if you look at the... Uh, uh, like under in, uh, under the complete works or under Jnana Yoga, maybe slightly, you know, some things are different. Or I think in the original he may quote a verse, and here he doesn't. They leave out the verse like that. So I'm using this version not because it's better, because it looks, looks cool on the, you know, I I always like it. It's like a great, like my favorite like tome type thing. <clears throat> 
So it doesn't give the date, but it says delivered in London. So the necessity of religion. So we were talking over tea that a title, necessity of religion, or the origin of religion, something like that, is, is not a sexy title now, topic now. It's not trending, right? And, and uh, uh, we were, like you mentioned, we'd be kicked out, what is it, kicked out of a, of a, uh, of a conference now, a religious conference, if, we, if my topic today was on the, the, or, the origins of religion or something like that. People don't, that it seemed too, too idealistic, too, too dogmatic in a certain sense, you know, to make such a statement. And, and even during Swamiji's time, this is something, since last time I talked about this was a year ago, almost exactly, maybe a year ago, exactly today, uh, uh, <coughs> Swamiji's talks at the Parliament of Religion, um, Adi, Adi Keshav suggested a very interesting book on the, found, the founding ideas of the religions, and it has a wonderful chapter on the on the on the on the, on the uh, Parliament of Religions. And one thing it points out is that there were no scholars at that conference. Right, uh, scholars were invited, but no scholars attended. Three or four scholars, like um, um, uh, Max Mueller, he sent a paper to be read, but he didn't attend. Right, so it was so it wasn't a scholarly uh, uh, gathering. Because it was seen as too idealistic, too um, aspirational. It's about you know the unity of religions, and it's, it's like it's, it's almost the idea of like a parliament of religions where the people of different religions come together and express their ideas. Itself is a religious idea. It's a it's, it was a new religion of the time. It was like this progressive new uh, approach uh, that sprung from certain schools of Protestantism of the time. Certain type, uh, uh, but the the scholars at the time they they were looked they were studying what they call at that time the title was the science of religion now we call it religious studies or other things you know now it's in all these different depart- departments but that was called the science of religion, um, uh, so <clears throat> this lecture does not fit into the science of religion as as studied now, but it's interesting it, it fully fits the time what I was amazed and I was like kind of skimming it this morning over my morning coffee, um, how. Uh, it, it it was the discussion of talk, of Swamiji's time, you know. So we'll we'll see. And so he's by giving his definition in a certain sense, like where religious consciousness comes from, where does religion start, right? Uh, uh, he's giving in a certain sense um, the a, a a highly spiritual, highly interpreted, aspirational, coming from Sri Ramakrishna and mysticism and his own idealism. Of of the, the the call of the human soul, you know, longing for God, longing for the longing for the absolute, like this. So we'll see what uh, what Swamiji says. Of all the forces that have worked and are still working to mold the destinies of the human race, none certainly is more potent than that whose manifestation we call religion. All social organizations have as their background somewhere the workings of that peculiar force, and the greatest cohesive impulse ever brought into play among human units have been derived from this power. It is obvious to all of us that in, that in very many cases the bonds of religion have proven stronger than the bonds of race or clime or even of descent. It is a well-known fact that persons worshipping the same God, believing in the same religion, have stood by each other with much greater strength and constancy than people of merely the same descent, or even, or even than brothers. Various attempts have been made to trace the beginnings of religion. 
and all the ancient religions we, that have come down to us to the, at the present day, we find one claim, one claim made, that they are all supernatural, that their genesis is not, as it were, in the human brain, but that they have originated somewhere outside of it. Now, of course, there's never been a force that's brought people together as strong, that's true. And in other places, you have to always understand that's the complete works of Swami Vivekananda is our nine volumes. <laughs> and nine volumes that barely repeat read themselves. So there's a lot. You can find a lot and if you if you go through there. He also usually here he doesn't in this thing, but usually right after such a statement he said, never has there been a, a cause of more dissent, more bloodshed, more hatred, more bigotry, more you know, separation between men and brothers and brothers and sisters and then really he, he often uses that. He, he's not that's not his theme here. But we can always put it together that it's a powerful force for good. Or for or, or for evil, as we know, as we can as we know. So whatever its use, it's a powerful force. And that the, the claim is that it doesn't originate in the brain of man, but originates from from a supernatural source. And that's of course already you're starting with a very a very radical claim. That's not um, that may be what many I could not was probably what all religious people usually think, or like it's a, a revealed religion, God. God entered humanity. Literally, God started human the world, right? But then, then God reveals the world ways for him, her, they to uh, to understand them. Reveals their knowledge and their relationship. And so, the claim of the scripture is being, you know, the word of God or eternal, coexisting, you know, and uh, somehow or revealed by a prophet, a messenger of God, or in the a little more broadly, in the ecstatic trances or visions of saints or of or go beyond the the top ten, top five religions that, that that we learned about in school, to you know to the the visions of the shamans and the and of, you know intuitions of like that. So that we th- those would be in the category of supernatural, coming from beyond time, beyond space, beyond creation, and reveal and being revealed. Right. That's not how religion is talked about in in. Uh, uh, academics, of course, as you, we, you also have a degree in religious studies. Um, uh, uh, the most we could, the most I studied in school on this topic is like, is not, of course, if, if, if that could be a degree in theology, not a degree in religion. If we're talking about, you know, how 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 exactly God started religion or something like that, you know. Instead, it's like we could we could say, oh, what different religions believe about how God started religion. That could be done as a topic, as a, one step back. But, basic, but, but a more, you see, in, in common discussions and in, in, in the world we hear things like, oh, God creates man in his image. We have like that, or, and, you know, that's a very, so it's almost a cheap thing to say. It's not very sophisticated, right? But behind it is actually a lot of sophisticated ideas. Like, we, you know, and there's many, and Swamiji is only going to mention a few possibilities, right? Is that, you know, one, he's like, oh, that, you know, like, the question is like, well, we see people dying, and then and and so what happens after we die? Is there anything that survives after death? And so that could be a source of beginning of religious consciousness. Or there's so many things we don't understand how they happen, so we can attribute it to a divine being to explain the unexplained or the unexplainable. That's another view that we create or develop. Maybe not just one big creation of religion, but religion develops like this idea. Others uh, um, like that. You can we can go through. Uh, um, there's a bunch of these um, um, that also that man's man's longing for meaning, man's need for me, man's 
I'm using man, the large man. We can change the language. Uh, uh, humanity's need for uh, um, um, uh, 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 meaning, right, leads to we're meaning seeking and meaning creation, creating creatures. A very create meaning, right? Maybe maybe there's no meaning, maybe there is meaning, but we need meaning. Obviously, that's some that's the quality of a human of the human species, and so we find it or we create it. One of the two, right? And therefore, that's the source of religion. It's the source of not just religion, it's the source of all kinds of things, our, 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 our meaning-seeking nature, right? So that's another possi- possible source, right? Uh, um, and Sri Ramakrishna, uh, uh, it's interesting, Sri Ramakrishna, he never talked like this, right? And he used the language, oh, God has created all the religions, right? And, and so that's, I, I remember when I'd like read, I'd read, you know, in our discussions or reading, we, we make it in front of our dear friend Igor. A few people know Igor here. Uh, he hasn't been around in a while, but you mentioned something like, you know, like a something like oh, uh, 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 like like a Joseph Campbell approach to uh, um, uh, seeing that uh, why there's so many similarities and mythologies and practice of religions because the human nature is the same and we have the same biology and the same neurology and therefore we create the same symbols for like that. He just Every time I even mention, he'd, he'd, he'd attack, right? This is, no, God created the religions, all of them, not, not your need for neurological whatever, you know, like he doesn't really, he defends, you know, like in case he was, he was a Ramakrishna school for sure, right? And the idea is that it's not like man searching, there we create images of God in our, in, in, or, or ideas of God or ideas of the absolute, but that God reveals them, right? And perhaps... I would. I'm. I'm. I'm a little bit. I tend to say because I have no problem thinking either way, right? Uh, uh, describing, and I think maybe they're maybe saying the same thing. God may reveal the truth because people are seeking the truth, right? And 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 God takes on forms or reveals His forms to those who want forms, want ideas, who want concepts. So something like that. They may not be separate things. Maybe the same thing or similar things seen from different angles, right? So I. Have, I personally don't have any problem with. I like Tucker's statement that he created all the religions, right, according to the, the, the need, right. But that, how he did that, how she did that, Tucker would probably say, is according, is, there may be very, uh, the aspirations of the human soul may be the thing that leads to it. Anyway, we'll see what Swamiji says. Two theories have gained some acceptance among modern thinkers, modern scholars. This is modern scholars at 18... 1893, 94, 95. So these aren't, these aren't modern. They're not contemporary to us. They were his contemporary scholars, and um, uh, uh, but these are these are big ones. One is the spirit theory of religion. The other, the evolution of the idea of the infinite. One party maintains that ancestor worship is the beginning of religious ideas. The other, that religion originates in the personification of the powers of nature. Man wants to keep alive the memory of his dead aunt relatives and thinks they are living even when the body is dissolved. He wants to place food for them and in a certain sense to worship them. Out of that desire came what we call religion. That's a very simple statement. You know, the, uh, you can see that's there, we could, there, that's, he, he's not presenting the full spectrum of this. It has been developed. Right? I think even Shami Shardanda mentions it in the, in the Lila Prashanga, some aspect of even how Hinduism had developed using kind of the theory. So he's, he's even... Uh, and that the idea that, that, that you know, when somebody dies, and we, you know, it's like we, they, we feel they're still alive. There's some, we may feel they're still alive because they are still alive and the soul doesn't die. I mean, we could, we could give it an immediate... That's proof of religion, right? But let's take a little, little looser 
gentler status. It's like we feel, they feel that they're still alive and they treat them as still alive and you feed them and you worship them and you visit their graves and you, you have a shrine to them and, and like this. And, 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 and some people would hold, especially during Swamiji's time, and it's less prevalent now in religious studies, um, uh, that, that this beginning of, of worship, that's the beginning of worship itself, the idea of a non-material entity and, therefore, and, and also of the, the beginning of worship. Now, I, I think it's probably overly simplistic just to, just to say like, oh, 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 your religion, oh yeah, people were worshiping their hand. They, they didn't believe their ancestors died. Right? That's where religion comes from. And it all develops from that. You know, I think it's a, maybe a little, it's, it could be too simple. Right? But there's not nothing there. That is one of the, this is what, many things in religion may have started in that way. Whether religion starts that way with the, the capital R, that I don't know. Or whether that, that's a simple answer to, way to, this, to, to say, oh yes, by understanding this, I understand all religion. Or by understanding this, I can dismiss all religion, right? That I think is a little cheap, right? But not very sophisticated. But anyways, uh, studying the ancient religions of the Egyptians, Babylonians, and the Chinese, and many other races in America and elsewhere, we find very clear traces of this ancestor worship beginning, being the beginning of religion. With the ancient Egyptians, the first idea of the soul was that of a double, now, of course, Egyptian study of Egyptian religion has developed since Swamiji's time. So he's presenting the popular view of this. But anyways, Every human body contained in itself another being very similar to itself. And when a man died, this double went out of his body and yet lived on. But the life of the double lasted only so long as the dead body remained intact. The idea of mummification and the like. Right? And that is why we find among the Egyptians so much solicitude to keep the body uninjured. And that is why they built the huge pyramids in which they preserved the bodies. For if any portion of the external body was hurt, the double whom would be correspondingly injured. This, this is clearly ancestor worship. With the ancient Babylonians, we find the same idea of the double, but with a variation. So this so. What Swamiji is saying is not. This is some. There is this view of of, of a double, and, and the, but it's perhaps overly simplified to say that that's the why the pyramids existed, and you know it's like. But anyways, I'm not gonna. Each each statement is like then when you're reading from a lecture that presupposes the time of a hundred years ago, it it's changed since then. But the the point is still, I think, good. Uh, um, with the, with the ancient Babylonians, we find the same idea of the double with a variation. The double lost all sense of love. It frightened the living to make them to make them give it food and drink and help it in various ways. So actually, this is true in many cultures, including in Hindu culture. That is that that uh, 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 when somebody dies, then they actually become dangerous. Right? So, so we we can worship the ancestors out of love for them, but also what if what if like they have connection to us, but they don't remember. Their relationship to us, right? They don't have the same body, the same. They don't have the same. They don't have a brain. You know, they have. They have the neuron. You know, it's like when when you the the whatever the double is, whatever the soul is, whatever the spirit is, it's not. Doesn't have the same relationship triggers now, right? And there, but it still has connections, and therefore it it can be dangerous, and therefore a lot of worship is done to uh, 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 to placate. And even now, there's Hindu rituals that we do sometimes. Oh, like some astrologer, or something, there's something wrong in your family. And you know you're uh, you can't have a child, 
he needs himself a and they go to an astrologer or to a, a holy person. They say, oh, you need to do the thing to placate your family. There's ancestors that are angry with you, and and it's the and the, and general Hinduism, the ancestors are the ones who are reborn as your as your children, right? So and, and therefore you have to make you know it's like it's weird for us to think where the ancestors are angry with us, and therefore we're not going to have children. That's a weird thing, but it's not like they're purposely ans- angry with us. It's they have a confused relationship, and we haven't and we have to do so. This is another. Um, relationship to the to the ancestors Swamiji has mentioned. The basis of religion among the Chinese may also be said to be ancestor worship, and it still permeates the length and breadth of the of the of that vast country. In fact, the only religion that we can really be said to flourish in China is that of ancestor worship. Thus, on the one hand, it seems that a very strong case has been made for those who hold the theory of ancestor worship as the beginning of religion. On the other hand, there are scholars. Who, who, from the ancient Aryan literature, show that religion originated nature worship. Now, this is more the Indian side, right? And this you, we hear, I've read books on, in, on, on, on Vedic religion and ancient pre, Vedic and pre-Vedic or non-Vedic religion that starts with this. That it originated in, in nature worship. Although in India we find proof of ancestor worship, yet in the oldest record there is no trace of it whatsoever. In the Rig Veda Samhita, the most ancient records of the Aryan race, we do not find any trace of it. Modern scholars think that, that it is the worship of nature that they find there. Right. So this is another view, and that the, the nature, worship of nature itself, nature spirits, the elements, uh, the powers of nature, then you have, they become deified. And we have, you have Indra, which is rain and clouds. You have Varuna, which is the wind or the water. Vayu, you know, you have the big cosmic, the big, the big deities of the ancient world. Actually, it's interesting that they're, they're basically, we lament sometimes that, that the ancient gods of the Vedas are no longer worshipped anymore. They've been replaced by another pantheon of like, you know, of, 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 uh, kind of streaming from the, from the Trinity, right? Uh, but in the Vedic rites, in the, the Vedic hymns, the ancient Vedic hymns are dealing primarily with these, these, the, the, the uh, gods that are, pres- are, Control nature or person or are or are nature. They're nature personified or nature spirits or they're controllers of nature, and perhaps that's also how they develop. So this is another and then the worship of the gods. Then when we begin to think, then we can even get Vedanta out of that. Well, there's all these different gods. So there's all these different gods. Is there are they manifesting one? Are they connected? Are they aspect of one reality? You can see from even the the idea of of nature worship. You can even you can develop with with a few jumps. To like an all-pervading Brahman, you can get you can, they pull you you can draw a line from nature nature worship to the uh, abstract philosophy, but this is the Aryan the Hindu Vedic perspective. The human mind seems to struggle to get to get a peep behind the scenes, the dawn, the evening, the hurricane the stupendous and gigantic forces of nature and its be- and its be- and its beauties all these have exper- have experienced sorry all these have exercised the human mind and it aspires to go beyond to understand something about them and the struggle it endows these phenomenon with personal attributes giving them souls and bodies sometimes beautiful sometimes transcendental every attempt ends by these phenomena becoming abstractions whether personalized or not. So also it is found with the ancient Greeks, their whole mythology is simply this abstract nature worship. So also with the ancient Germans, the Scandin- uh, 
a very I'm sorry, the Scandinavians and all other and all the other Aryan races. Thus, on this side too, a very strong case has been made that religion has its origins in the personification of the powers of nature. Swamiji also mentioned that they can become not only have they even if they're personified, they can be personified or not, but they're it's also, I think, a, a Indian tendency to abstract them. So it just becomes not just like a particular being that controls the weather. It becomes weather, and then it becomes, it becomes more and more like a principle and an aspect of a greater principle. It becomes abstract this way. Right. These two views, although they seem contradictory, can be reconciled by a third view, a third basis, which to my mind is the real germ of religion. And this I propose to call the struggle to transcend the limitations of the senses. That's Swami's definition. And he believes that actually you can see this, this, this definition in nature worship and, and, and the abstraction of nature worship as well as in, in, in ancestor worship. The human desire, need, tendency to, to um, uh, uh, transcend or go beyond the senses. Right? And so Swamiji, I mean, I to say something, not just read, so I don't feel too bad about <laughs> uh, explaining. But Swami, uh, uh, um, uh, um, oh, we'll, 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 we'll Swamiji, and then I'll, I'll expand it. Either a man goes to seek for the spirits of his ancestors, the spirit of the dead, that is, he wants, I'm sorry, um, either a man goes to seek for the spirits of his ancestors, the spirits of the dead. That is, he wants to get a glimpse of, the, of what there is after the body is dissolved. Or he desires to understand the powers working behind the stupendous phenomenon of nature. Whichever of these he wants, one thing is certain, that he tries to transcend the limitations of the senses. He cannot remain satisfied with his senses. He wants to go beyond them. So if the idea is like, what's be, you want to go beyond the grave... I mean, that's a, that's a very clear ending of the senses. Or, but, uh, we'll continue. The explanation need not be mysterious. To me, it seems very natural that the first glimpse of religion should come through dreams. The first idea of immortality, man may well get through dreams. Is not dreaming a most wonderful state? And we know that children and untutored minds find very little difference between dreaming and this, their awakened state. Even dream, even during sleep, when the body is apparently dead, the mind goes on with all its intricate workings. What wonder that man will at once come to the conclusion that when the body is dissolved forever, the same working will go on. This, to my mind, would be a more natural explanation of the supernatural. And through the dream idea, the human mind rises to higher and higher conceptions. So if you immediately dream, we experience everything in dream, but, the, but, we're not, but it's not through the senses, it's not through the body. We experience a whole world that, that doesn't exist externally. So already at the beginning, you're, you're beginning... To, there's, a, there's a tendency, in certain schools of yoga also, this tendency is there, and, 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 and kind of clear-headed Vedanta, this tendency is there. Uh, uh, it's like... Dreams mean you know not you know not real, right? And when you dream something, it's not it didn't actually happen, so it's false. It's more fa- this world may be false, but dreams are even more false, right? Because you know it's like it's like the simple. I, that, there's a scene I, I may have mentioned was our, our was uh, Ram Priyadas had a, a a bad dream. You know, then he meant to our Guruji Swami Omananda, and he mentioned his dream, and he was very concerned about it. And so Guruji says, so 
it was a dream, so you know, not real. <laughs> you know, like it didn't actually happen. You know, so it's like you're upset about something that didn't actually happen, right? It has meaning, of course. Then we give it, oh, there's a projection of our unconscious and trying to tell us something. You know, like so. There, there's always that. Like, like, but there's another aspect. That's that's a that's from the very harsh logical perspective, right? Another aspect is like, well, dreams in a certain sense are maybe even more real because they're not lim- they're less. We're less limited in dream if. By real, we mean less limited. If you're looking, if we're, if the goal is to be not limited by the senses, to transcend the hard cash waking reality, right, and the and the and the rules of nature and the rules of, of the senses and and and, and that the dreams in dream, we do that a little bit, you know. Time has no meaning, you know. Uh, uh, um, uh, most outrageous things can be can be experienced that. That you you know all kind of, I mean we all have this experience I I don't have a very rich dream life so it's, I don't have as much to remember mm-hmm. but some people have very rich dream life and they the, and and people who cultivate their their dream life right that's another thing you know uh, and because what it, you see it it is a natural tendency because it's and and there's whole spiritual practices that are based upon revelations in the dream because and the idea that you're getting revelations beyond the senses and you're experiencing things beyond the senses. Others say, no, you're experiencing only thing. You're getting information from the senses and you're misinterpreting them and you're making up a false world and you're not, you know, you can know, I can, I can, the thing is, I, I, can, I can accept that too. But you all know there's dreams and dreams, right? So, so, <laughs> there's dreams and dreams and then there's dreams, you know, there's like, there's other types of dreams that are another category altogether, right? A lot of dreams are just the flotsam and jetsam of our daily experience being fleshed out of the mind that, like we believe, right? But even that's interesting, you know, that in the waking, through the senses and through the waking mind, we can't process everything we experience. So in the dream mind, even that, just a, what, a, what a wonderful system to, otherwise you probably go crazy or over, you have to flesh that out and experience it and digest it. And, 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 and. But anyway, so that even this, this uh, uh, Swamiji is going that from, from, especially in Hinduism, that, and, and Vedanta holds the same thing, is that you go from like the waking state, you have the dream state, then you have the dreamless state. Right, you know, because in in one sense, if you're bound by the senses and logic in, and the logic of the senses of the sense world in the waking state, you're less bound by it, in the dream in the dream state, right? To push it in this in a direction that Swamiji is probably not going to push it here. Like you could be way trans beyond it in the dreamless state, right? But whether or not the problem is that we don't remember our dreamless state, right? Vedanta says. <laughs> That's too bad, <laughs> because our dream, in our dreamless state, we're actually we're actually experiencing samadhi, right? But we do so through ignorance and unconscious. We're we're unconscious of the supreme reality that we're experiencing, you know. And so that's anyway. That's a exactly in this in this very book, <laughs> Swamiji goes heavily into it in his Gyana Yoga book. But that's not the topic of today. What is the topic of today? <laughs> Of course, in time, the vast majority of mankind found out that their dreams are not verified by their waking states, and that dream, during the dream state, it is not that a man has a fresh experience, existence, but simply he recapitulates the experiences of the awakened state that we were saying. But by this time, the search has begun, had begun, and the search was inward, and they continued inquiring more deeply into the different stages of the mind and discovered a higher state than either the waking or the dream state, either waking or the dreaming. 
That state, which we find in all organized religions of the world, is called either ecstasy or inspiration. So this is not, a, not exactly using the language of, the, of, the, of dreamless sleep and like that, but there seems to be experiences beyond the waking state that aren't just dream. But once you start getting oriented towards dream and these type of experiences, you're already looking for something different, a different category of experience. So that may lend itself to this inspiration, intuition, and ecstasy. In all organized religions, their founders, prophets, and messengers are declared to have gone into a state of mind that was neither waking nor sleeping, in which they came face to face with a new sort, series of facts, relating to what they called the spiritual kingdom, a whole other word, world of experience. Right. They realize things there much more intensely than we realize facts around us in our waking state. Actually, uh, I think it's a very, it's a very, um, uh, it's a, it's a very uh, radical thing to say when somebody says, "Oh, I've experienced something beyond the mind, beyond this world, right? Beyond the material realm, right?" So, what do you, what can you say to such a person? You know, there's no way to test their experience. There's no way for them to demonstrate their experience, right? Um, um, uh, Anyway, we'll see. it's very interesting. The Vedas are said to have... Take, for instance, the, re, the religion of the Hindus. We should do that. Right. We can, this is what our, our general topic here, the religions of the Hindus, and a, corner, a corner of this neighborhood, right? <clears throat> the religions of the Hindus. Hmm. The Vedas are said to have been written by rishis. These rishis were sages who realized certain facts. The, ex- the exact definition of the Sanskrit term rishi is seer of mantras, of the thoughts conveyed in the Vedic hymns. These men declared that they had realized, sensed, if that, would be, if that, if that word could be used with regard to the supersensuous, certain facts, and these facts they proceeded to put on record. We find the same truth declared amongst both Jews and the Christians. So this is a this is a the the, the rishis are they they declare that they sense like he says Swamiji the problem is going beyond the senses, but the sense in a, in a non sense in not beyond in a way to know or perceive or to experience beyond the normal the normal uh, instruments uh, details that the normal instruments cannot apprehend that so there is a. The claim is that there's something beyond the senses, and that there's a way to experience to gain that knowledge beyond the senses, and then write it. They wrote it down. The rishis then or spoke it, and then it got passed down. And he says the Jews and the Christians. This is the idea of the revealed, the revealed scriptures. Um, it's not identical, but a uh, conception. But for this discussion, it's identical. You know that, or they hear, you know, God appeared to them, or they, or they, or in a dream, or sometimes it's in a dream, but but you know, in a in a they get fresh knowledge or they get an, through anointing or through revel- some sort of revelation where they give that knowledge. Right. This is an interesting sub-point of what it means, whether or not like the, the, the uh, uh, normal scripture that we consider in most religions and a rishi seeing a Vedic mantra is identical or not, but it's a very interesting topic. They're related for sure. An exception may be made of the Buddhist as represented by the southern sect 
It may be asked, if the Buddhists do not believe in any god or soul, how can their religion be de derived from this supersensual state of existence? The answer to this is that even the Buddhists find an eternal moral law. And that moral law was not, was, not uh, was not reasoned out of our senses of the world, our sense of the world. But Buddha found it, discovered it in a supersensual state. This is the claim. Whether Buddhists would agree with that uh, representation, not all. Some would, some wouldn't, right? But this is this is definitely the Hindu perspective on the Buddhist re re realization. Whatever the Buddha Buddha experienced, he experienced new knowledge. He got fresh understanding through some pursue ecstatic peak experience. When we call it the enlightenment. You can't get more peak experience than enlightenment, you know, uh, and therefore could speak. He didn't like get there by reason, but just just by reasoning from the senses. He didn't just infer from the senses the truth of, 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 of the Buddha Dharma in the Buddhist religion. He also experienced it in some sense. It comes from a supersensuous, transcendental state. Those of you who had studied the life of Buddha, even as briefly given in that beautiful poem, The Light of Asia, may remember that Buddha is re represented as sitting under a bow tree until he reached that supersensuous state of mind. All his teachings came through this and not through intellectual cogitation. That's definitely... Uh, um, dates the the lecture, the Light of Asia. Ever ever, ever read that Light of Asia? It's a small little book mm -hmm. by Sir Edwin Arnold, I believe. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It I think it's I think it's a, it's been a while since I've said that, but uh, uh, it's uh, uh, it's a beautiful poem describing the life of Buddha. You know, but it was it was uh, it was very popular during Swamiji's time. You know. So it's interesting, and it's worth it's worth reading. It's it's worth reading to see how how Buddhism was popularized in the West during that time. It's a very interesting. You can now now you can critique it as being an Orientalist land and all that type of stuff, but it's still very interesting. It's it's definitely a a, a slice. Yoga also Paramahansa Yogananda quotes that was like a pocket book of his. You know, I think I got my copy from published by SRF or something. I think they're probably the only people in America that still publish it, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's definitely of that period of time. Very, very beautiful. Thus, a tremendous statement is made by all the religions that the human mind at certain moments transcends not only limitations of the senses, but also the power of reasoning. It then comes face to face with facts which it could never have sensed, could never have reasoned out. These facts are the basis of all the religions of the world. This is a big jump, right? But uh, but you know he's talking in very broad statements, right? But the statement is that the the statement is made, the tremendous statement is made that human mind at certain moments transcends not only limitation of the senses but the power of reasoning beyond the senses and beyond the intellectual uh, uh, standards of reasoning, and that uh, and comes face to face with facts, another category of facts. Right. It's not like, oh, you know, if I can go into ecstasy and get the answer to my quiz or to the math thing. It's not that type of stuff, right? You know, you know. Un unfortunately, I found in my math class at junior college <laughs> that I took seven times. <laughs> right. Meditation didn't help at all <laughs> in, in pre-algebra. <laughs> you know, kirtan didn't help. Japa didn't help. Reading of the Vedas didn't help. <laughs> Asanas didn't help. <laughs> Turns out you have to study algebra <laughs> to get good at algebra, right? So the thing is that, but so it's not it's not that that super sensuous knowledge of things that can be of things that can be sensed and reasoned out here. 
into the senses, right? It's that another category of knowledge that cannot that can only be understood through beyond the senses and beyond the mind. Beyond the senses, beyond the mind is the way we would say it now, probably, right? <laughs> these facts are the basis of all religion of the world. Of course, we have the right to challenge these facts and put them to the test of reason. Nevertheless, all the existing religions of the world claim for claim for the human mind this peculiar power of transcending the limits of the senses and the limits of reason. And this power they put forward as a statement of fact. I think that is a true thing. That, that, that either for everyone, or at least for some, or at least for one, right? This, this, the, some access to another category of knowledge is claimed, right? Um, uh, um, Sometimes the claim is only the founder of a religion has that knowledge. Nobody else has. We can just believe him or follow him. Or and our only access to that category of knowledge is to believe those who have access to that category of knowledge. And there's an, a logic of that also. You know, there's a lot of things that people who are, I mean, just things that theoretically, I, like, theor, like if I couldn't pass my, if it took me seven times to not pass my pre-algebra class, right, I'm not going to be able to get really good knowledge of like astrophysics, things like that you know i can't even basic math i couldn't handle right right but so what do you do so there in, in a certain sense theoretically i could study and, and take the time and get tutors and 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 become expert in some form of higher mathematics or higher the new physics or something quantum theory and things like that but I can't, right? Yeah. I won't. Also, I mean, I don't think I can actually. I, I'm not. I'm not willing to out of embarrassment because I like to be mildly successful. Things that you try, I, I wouldn't be successful, right? But so, in a certain sense, you have to trust those who've experienced it, right? I, I also, I, I do trust. One thing I do trust, I do trust expertise, and there's people who have expertise, right? There's people who have expertise of things beyond my personal understanding, right? I can have enough understanding to whether or not I can trust that that person's expertise you know, credentials and things like this, you know. Uh, so, but some of the claim is that the, it's for a select few to have this type of knowledge, and, and only way we can know about this knowledge is through following them and, and reading, like we read the script, we read the Vedas, we don't see the Vedas like the original sages did, right? right? Others is that only one person, it's like singular or like a prophet, only, only the prophet can, can have this knowledge, right? Right, uh, like I remembering our our, our our dear friend Swami Bodhicittananda, before he was Swami Bodhicittananda, he was he was uh, Baha'i, and the Baha'is are it's one of like he, he even told me he says if you were to judge the best religion, it could be the Baha'is by every by, by by standard he does start checking off like by by views of this by views of the modern world by position of women by position of you know he says more by 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 by, by but he says why aren't you Baha'i he says oh only the Baha'u'llah has transcendental knowledge. Right, it's not. It's, it, he's a prophet. We can never. We can follow the prophet. Can never be the prophet. And I want whatever whatever the transcendental knowledge I have to experience, not just follow somebody who has experienced it. Right. He says, but at face value, if, if I'm comparing them, it's superior in every way, by all the landmarks that you circle, except for the one that whether or not you can also experience. Right. It's a prophetic religion. This is a, this is one of a potential glitch for many yogis of a prophetic religion that is. It's not. It's like. Swami Vivekananda many times said, it's like, well, one man, if, 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 a, if a rishi or people that we consider prophets and saviors and Buddhas, right, and saints, right, if they've experienced it, that means it can be experienced, right? And if it can't be experienced, then what does it matter what, what they claim to be experienced, if they've experienced? At least potentially it should be experienced, experienceable. Of course, not everybody's 
there is not everybody has the same talent, right? <laughs> or there's like a, an astrophysics, not everybody's willing to go, th- not everybody has a talent inclin- or and willing to put forth the work to have that experience. So sometimes we can just believe and follow the general teachings of those who we believe have had that type of experience. But this is a, but, but Swamiji's point, this is, a, this is still a big point. People claim that there's, that you can, exp- there, there's a way of experience facts beyond the senses and beyond the mind, right? And that those facts do exist, right? And that, and that is a central claim of religion. I think that's generally true in most cases. Of course, we have the right to challenge these facts, to put them to the test of reason. Nevertheless, all the existing religions of the world claim for the human mind a particular power of transcending the limits of the senses and the limits of reason, and that power they put forth, they put forth as a statement of fact. Apart from this, this consideration of the question of how far these claimed, how far these facts claimed by religion are true, we find one characteristic in common to them all. They are all abstractions, as construct contrasted with the concrete discoveries of physics of physics for instance for instance and in all these highly organized religions they they take the purest form of abstract unity as either an abstract presence or an omnipresent being or an abstract personality called god or a moral law or an abstract essence under underlying every existence So like I like it's like whatever you claim whatever they're claiming from this experience whether you believe that like there's a lot of claims of people who believe are who believe themselves or other people believe them to be prophets or sages or real like that and I look at there's like going oh well that can't be right <laughs> right we can and we, and you present them in the in, in the competition of religious ideas some of them you know we 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 don't feel comfortable accepting you know those principles and things like that so that but independent of that right uh, um, <clears throat> uh, we find a tendency to universalize or abstract whatever their discoveries are right into like you say like into like into uh, to a point like a, like a unity or an essence or a supreme not just a being but a supreme being not you know not just a principle but prince like foundational principles and like this. In modern times, too, the attempt made to preach religions without appeal, appeal, appealing to the supersensual state of mind have. I'm sorry. I, uh, in modern times, too, the attempt made to preach religions without appealing to the supersensuous state of mind have had to take up the old abstractions of the ancients to give them different and give them different names to them, such as moral law, the ideal unity, and so forth, thus showing that these abstractions are not in the senses. None of us have yet seen the ideal human being, and yet we are told to believe in him. None of us have yet seen the ideal perfect man. Yet, yet without the ideal, that ideal, we cannot progress. This is a, a big theme of Swami Vivekananda in his in his um, um, uh, Vedanta, practical Vedanta lecture. He talks about that that uh, this idea of of um, without even an abstract ideal beyond us, whatever that is, it's like, and we don't progress, even though we've never seen it. We maybe it never, and maybe we, we we've never. Uh, and we, even if we, it, we, we don't think we can attain it, but without some ideal, some of you will continue. Uh, 
Thus, one fact stands out from all these different religions, that there is an ideal abstract unity, which is put before us in the form of either a person, capital P, or in an impersonal being, or law, or a presence, or of an essence. That, co- that co- covers all, all a bunch of categories of religion. A, pr- a, a person, a presence, a essence, or impersonal ground of being. Right? We are always struggling to raise ourselves up to that ideal. Every human being, whosoever and wherever he may be, has an ideal, has an ideal of infinite power. Every human being has an ideal of infinite pleasure. Most of the works that we find around us, the activities displayed everywhere, are due to the struggle for this infinite power or this infinite pleasure. This is our, we quote all the time, our Guruji saying the same thing, that, uh, that we want actually the, the real, what, we're, look, what we're, try, we're struggling for is not just a little bit of experience or a little bit of happiness. We want, we talked about this a couple weeks ago in the Kali Sasanama talks also, with the name Ananda and this Paramananda and things like this, right? Uh, we want. We want. We, we're actually seeking infinite. We want more. We want the infinite. We want infinite happiness, infinite experience. But a very few. But very. Few, but a very few quickly discover that 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 although they are struggling for infinite power, it is not through the senses that it can be reached. They find out very soon that the infinite pleasure is not to be got through the senses, or in other words, that the senses are too limited and the body is too limited to express the infinite. To manifest the infinite through the finite is impossible, and sooner or later man learns to give up this attempt to express it through the finite. And the quote I always tell of our Guruji is to search for infinite, uh, infinite uh, value from, an, from a finite object or permanent value from an impermanent object, you're bound to be frustrated. Eventually you realize that it has to be found in another sense, another way. This giving up, this renunciation of the attempt is the background of ethics. Oh, Swamiji, what time is it now? Six o'clock, okay. We're after, <laughs> Swamiji's unique uh, definition of ethics. I forgot, I forgot. Oh yeah, this is where, he, one of the places he goes into his definitions of ethics. Right. Swami has a unique definition of religion and a unique definition of ethics. We'll see. This giving up, this renunciation of the attempt. What's the attempt? To, to find uh, pleasure through the senses. Uh, uh, to seek finite is a background a background of ethics. Renunciation is the very basis which ethics stands. There never was an ethical code preached which has not renunciation for its basis. Right. Ethics always says, "Not I, but Thou." The motto is not self, but not self, but non-self. Pure non-not, but means the other, not just. The vain ideas of individualism to which man clings when he is trying to find that infinite power or that infinite pleasure through the senses, these have to be given up, says the laws of ethics. You have to put yourself last and others before you. The senses say, myself first. Ethics say, I must hold myself last. Thus all codes of ethics are based upon renunciation, destruction, not construction, of the individual on the material plane. Now, these are strong ideas, right? And so Swamiji, one of the other places he says, actually, and I'm not sure if he fully goes into it here, I forget, but um, that his, his ethic theory is based upon the self. 
because any statement of like why well, like why should I be nice to you in, instead of why should I care about your wants is, uh, and, along with mine or instead of mine or above mine when if 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 the utilitarian thing if the if the purpose of life is pleasure I should get pleasure right why should I deny pleasure for your benefit right there's a sense of the self there's a sense of the other the the, the non self in others you know the self in the non self the, the the there's something transcending the our limited because our limited personality our limited ego and the limited that's experience of the world with limited senses and limited mind right that as soon as you begin to intuit the larger the the universal the subtle right then and you and and and, and you uh, search for it right it's going to adjust your behavior in this way so the infinite will never find expression on oh, I got the uh building uh people are startled if they are asked not to think about their individuality they seem very much afraid of losing what they call their individuality at the same time the same man would declare the highest ideal of ethics to be right never for a moment thinking that the scope the goal the ideal of all ethics is the destruction and not the building up of the individual utilitarians standards cannot explain the ethical relations of men for in the first place you cannot derive any ethical law from from consideration of utility i think there's a modern thinker that can 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 say that in a different way but we'll leave it for his time without the struggle toward the infinite sorry uh, uh without the supernatural sanction as it is called or the perception of the superconscious as i prefer to term it there is there can be no ethics without the struggle toward the infinite there can be no ideal any system that wants to bind men down to the limits of their own societies is not able to find an explanation for the ethical laws of mankind the utilitarian wants to give up the struggle after the infinite the reaching out for the supersensuous the impract the impractical and absurd and in the same breath ask us to take up ethics to do good to society why should we do good doing good is a secondary consideration we have we have an ideal we must have an ideal ethics itself is not the end but is a means to the end if the end is not there why should we be ethical why should i do good to other men and not injure them if happiness is the goal of mankind why should i not make myself happy and others unhappy what prevents me if we want but i think if we if we want the transcendental we have to live with that knowledge also also in the second place the basis of utility is is too narrow all the current social forms and methods are derived from society as it exists but what right has a utilitarian to assume that society is eternal society did not exist ages ago possibly will not exist hence ages hence the idea is like that that's a, a all the current social forms and methods are derived from society as it exists it's it's nothing i mean agruji you very every time any course there's a lot of geopolitical stirrings right now making everybody uncomfortable but i remember carlos made a, he when i think the the uh, uh i think the the first bombing of kuwait or something the first i remember that thing and uh, carlos took agruji on the uh, following newspapers we we bombed kuwait agruji america this is the beginning of world war 3 
He's like, of course, luckily, well, he wasn't predicted, but he was always, he was always waiting. He, he says the whole thing's been built up in 200 years, 300 years, 400 years. It will crash just as quickly. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm hoping now we're praying for everybody like that. But he always said like that. It's like, this is the, and, and he said, do not worry, you're eternal. <laughs> I was always there. He was like, it makes me very, made me very nervous to hear some things. <laughs> you like, but the thing, but his point, his point is like, like we build this whole thing about what, but what about our, like it's they build up, they've of course we build them up and we try to, but they can crash really easy, mm-hmm. right? To give them to give, put everything on this this on on the most changing. Uh, to give too much value to one of the most changing aspects of life. That's the point. Society did not exist years ago, possibly will not exist ages hence. Most probably it is a one of the passing stages to which we are going through towards a higher evolution. And any law that is derived from society alone cannot be eternal, cannot cover the whole ground of man's nature. At best, therefore, utilitarian theories can only work under present social conditions. Beyond that, they have no value. But in morality... An ethical code derived from religion and spirituality has the whole of infinite man for its scope, not just the finite parts, right? Not just the changing society rules. You know, it has the infinite. It has the infinite human, the human potential, infinite potential as its scope. It takes up the individual, but its relations are to the infinite, and it takes up the society also. But society is nothing but members of these individual grouped together. And as it applies to the individual, it has eternal relations. It must necessarily apply to the whole of society in whatever condition it may be at any given time. Thus we see that there is always a necessity of spiritual religion for mankind. Man cannot always think of matter, however pleasurable it may be. Actually, this is a, 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 another interesting point. There's one of my professors at Berkeley, Robert Bella. He was a famous sociologist, one of the... I think he's still living. If, if if he's still living, he's probably one of the main theologians of, of religion, and he he used to use this term. It's been a it's been a long time. Try <laughs> going back to the to his term. Uh, but he was, he say that the senses that that humans cannot bear the ordinary, right? This is his term. We mu- we cannot live in the ordinary. The ordinary, the mundane. Or the senses, or like that, is actually we think we have we live we we met with that's how we go to work, how we make money, how we do stuff, how we cook like that. But you see, we drink, we watch TV, we 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 uh, uh, um, uh, we, uh, we smoke pot, we do all we do all. I mean, we have to we're escaping reality all the time. We're playing video games, right? We can't the, rea- the regular reality is. Yeah, I, I remember now the the the, the realm of everyday life. Right, he says the drama of everyday life is no human being can survive in it for even hours at a time. Mm-hmm. We're constantly escaping, daydreaming. If we do it, we'll, we'll, we'll kill ourselves. I mean, it's, it's unbearable, right? And and so some people make it a point. I mean, religion then becomes a search for the extraordinary, mm-hmm. not the ordin- not the everyday, right? You know, so that the search that's another. In this, he's in his modern or more recent scholarship. He did. He he was somebody who who um, interviewed. He was a, a, a field scholar interviewing people and, their, and about their religious quests and things like that, right? How he came up with these ideas, but he said we have to, we cannot live in the, and we cannot live in the realm of the senses for long, right? Man cannot always think of matter, however pleasurable it may be. You see, you know? it has been said that too much attention of, of to things spiritual disturbs our practical relations in this world. 
Right? Too much religious thinking ruins everything. I think that's true. <laughs> as far back as the days of the Chinese sage Confucius, it was said, let us take care of the world, and then, when we have finished with the world, we can take care of the other worlds. It is all very well that we should take care of this world. But if too much attention to the spirit... If too much attention to the spiritual may affect our practical relations a little, too much attention to the so-called practical hurts us here and in the hereafter, for it makes us materialistic. Man is not to regard nature as his goal, but something higher. Man is man so long as he's struggling to rise above nature. This is one of, you know, Swamiji has these great definitions. The definition of a human being is you're a human if you're struggling to go beyond your human nature. Right, you're, you're, that's a very great. You know, his, he has these wonderful definitions. Right, man is human is man as long as he is struggling to rise above nature, and this nature is both internal and external. Not only does it comprise the laws that govern the particles of the universe of, the, of matter outside of us and in our bodies, but it also the more subtle nature within, that is, in fact, the motive power governing the external. It is good and very grand to conquer external nature but grander still to conquer our internal nature. Now we have to Swamiji's language, we won't use this language anymore. We're not, like, conquering external nature is not like lording it over. But, you know, so it's, we wouldn't, you know, that, that's an um, unfortunate word now. We wouldn't say, like, conquer nature, and conquer, you know, not this manly type of aggressive, warlike, con- you know, conquer nature and conquer this, but just master as in, we should be masters of our environment and, and you know, that, that type of it's part of Swamiji's language of his time. Hmm. It is grand and good to know the laws that govern the, star, the stars and planets. It is infinitely greater, grander and better to know the laws that govern the passions, the feelings, the will of mankind. This conquering of the inner man Understanding the subtle workings that are within the human mind and knowing its wonderful secrets belongs entirely to religion. The human mind, the human mind, the ordinary human mind, I mean, wants to see big material facts. The ordinary mind, man, cannot understand anything that is subtle. Well, has it been said that the masses admire the lion, that it kills a thousand lambs. Never for a moment thinking that although it is a momentary triumph for the lion, it is death of the lambs, because the masses find pleasure only in the manifestation of physical strength. We can see that, you know, that's very interesting. We say, oh, what a powerful lion. Thus it is with ordinary human... Ordinary, I'm gonna, if, I keep, if, I, if I comment, I'm going to run into I want to finish. It, he goes, he, well, Swamiji always goes, boom, 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 and then slams it at the end. I want to get to the slammed ending, you know. <laughs> so if I keep talking, I won't get that. But I have a lot to say on this. I love this. I like this. This stuff is good. Mm-hmm. Thus it is with ordinary run of mankind. They understand and find pleasure in everything that is external. But in every society, there is a section whose pleasures are not in the senses, but beyond, and who, now, who, and who now and then catch glimpses of something higher than matter and struggle to reach it. So hopefully, this is this august assembly here. We gather in this way. We sense uh, something beyond the senses. Maybe we sometime experience it to some level, and we're after it. 
This is our goal. This is a real goal. And if we read the history of nations between the lines, we shall always find that the rise of the nations comes with an increase in the number of such men, and falls and the fall begins when the, when this pursuit after the infinite, however vain and utilitarians call it, has ceased. That is to say, the the main the, the main spring of the strength of every race lies in its spirituality. And the death of the race begins the day that spirituality wanes and materialism gains ground. Thus, apart from the solid fact and truth that we may learn from religion, apart from the comforts that we may gain from it, religion as a science, as a study, is the greatest and healthiest exercise that the human mind can have. This pursuit of the this pursuit of the infinite, that's Swamiji's definition and working definition of religion right now. This pursuit of the infinite, this struggle to grasp the infinite, this effort to get beyond the limitations of the senses, out of matter, as it were, and to evolve the spiritual man, this striving day and night to make the infinite one of our one with our being, this struggle itself is the grandest and most glorious that man can make. Some persons find their greatest pleasure in eating. We have, we have no right to say that they should not. Others find the greatest pleasure in possessing certain things. We have no right to say that they should not. But they, should ha- but they also have no right to say that the man who finds his highest pleasure in spiritual thought, the lower the organization, the greater the pleasure in the senses. And very few men can eat a meal with the same gusto of a dog or a wolf. But all the pleasure of the dog and the wolf have gone, as it were, into the senses. The lower types of humanity in all nations find pleasure in the senses while the cultured and the educated find it in thought, in philosophy, in arts, and sciences. Spirituality is still a higher plane. The subject being infinite, that plane is the highest, and the pleasure there is the highest for those who can appreciate it. Even so, on utilitarian grounds, man, man is to seek for pleasure. He should cultivate religious thought, for it is the highest pleasure that exists. Even if you want pleasure... If, you're the, if, if we're pleasure-seeking and we are, another definition, Swamiji's definition of the human being is uh, one who tries to with it, uh, uh, searching for the infinite. Another a good definition is a pleasure, we're also pleasure-seeking, pleasure-seeking, right? So these, these are not contradictory, right? The, the desire for pleasure, when, it's, when one gets a glimpse of what possible, that, uh, in last week's talk, Padamananda is possible, the supreme, highest, higher category. Mm. Thus, religion is a study as a study seems to me to be absolutely necessary. It seems to me also to be absolutely necessary. <laughs> we can see it in its effect. It is the greatest motive power that moves the human mind. No other idea can put us into the same mass of energy than the spiritual can. So far as human history goes, it is obvious to all, all of us, that this has been the case and that its powers are not dead. I do not deny that men on simply utilitarian grounds can be very good and moral. There have been many great men in this world, perfectly sound, moral, and good, simply on utilitarian grounds. But the world movers, men who bring, as it were, a mass of magnetism into the world, whose spirit works in hundreds and in the thousands, whose life ignites others with a spiritual fire, such men, we always find, have that spiritual background. Their motive power came from religion. 
Religion is the greatest motive power for realizing that infinite energy, which is the birthright and nature of every man. Another one of Swamiji's themes, that this, that this, uh, uh, this inf- the, the infinite energy is our nature and our birthright. It's who we actually are, and it's why we're here. We, we can claim it if we, if we put forth the effort. Hmm. In building up character, in making for everything that is good and great, in bringing peace to others and peace to one's own self, religion is the highest motive power and therefore ought to be studied from that standpoint. Religion is, so that's a very, like, that's a very aspirational, very motive, you know, it's like religion is a goal, like, but which religion? (laughs) You know, that's the problem when you make such statements. The the, the super sensuous claims of knowledge are usually come with um, uh, uh, only way stickers attached to it. You know, everybody's claiming or, or the highest way or the best way. You know, how do we, so Swamiji always moving towards a, a trying to find universal principles. He's going to try to, to um, um, spread it out a little bit so we can approach this as a topic without getting caught into sectarianism and things like that that's so prevalent in religion. When we're trying to find the infinite, we immediately, as soon as anything's said about the infinite, people start, the, they start, I mean, not only like, like we can argue about like the color of something, whether that you know, yellow dress or blue dress or one on the internet was yellow or blue, whatever that thing is, right? right. But you have the wrong view of the Trinity. You, I can kill you. You know, it's like, you know what I mean? You deserve to die. You know, it's like, I mean, it's like, it's like religion, these, talking about the most absolute, people get absolutely crazy and, 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 and most limited, right? So Swamiji is always gaming. He's always rooting for this broad and, and, and aspirational definition and, and motivation of religion of the human soul searching for the infinite and the infinite calling the human, the, the, the soul out of, of, of the finite um, without getting caught in the mess of, the, of religion, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Let's see what somebody says. I got it. I got it. It's, a, it's a tough one. <laughs> Religion must be studied on a broader basis than formally. That's his opening statement, right? We have to study now religion differently than we used to study it, right? You know, all narrow, limiting, fighting ideas, ideas of religion have to go. Either, these are all underlying statements. All narrow, limited, fighting ideas of religion have to go. All sectarian ideas and tribal or national ideas of religion must be given up. That each tribe or nation should have its own particular God and think it's, that every other is wrong is a superstition that should belong to the past. The new definition of superstition. Right? <laughs> now the superstition is that my religion alone is a real religion, my God alone is a real God. That's superstition. Because actually you see, the word superstition is a complicated word and a loaded word, right? But... Um, um, the things we used to claim for our people would claim for their religion and and describe other people's religion. I mean, superstition could be described on somebody else's religion, right? <laughs> other people's beliefs and practices that superstition, right? <laughs> right. Uh, 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 that simple definition. But now we have, you know, we we're no longer we're no longer like separated from people. I mean, there's the internet. You can, there's bookstores. You know, we we were people at the work, at school, in elementary school, of different religions, and like, and so we could see like, and all the things we claim for ours, we see just realist, just as realistically existing. You know, anything that we claim that our religion is does for for whatever proofs 
or examples or evidence we have for our religion are found in other religions. Mm -hmm. any, any things that we critique in other religions are also found in our religions. Mm -hmm. right? So you can no longer make this, this type of statements. These type of statements are no longer um, uh, justifiable. Therefore, superstitious. That's Swamiji's language, right? Right. You can't. You can't make. Oh, 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 only my religion is like that. What about? But we find that in other religions. No, they're wrong. But we find that in our religion, right? <laughs> they're, they're, you know, or, or, or and things like that. That every tri that each tribe or, na or nation should have its own particular god and think that every other is wrong. It's a superstition that should come, that should belong to the past. All such, all such ideas must be abandoned. As the human mind broadens, its spiritual ideas broaden too. The time has already come when a man cannot re record a thought without it reaching to all corners of the earth. I mean, talk about that. This is before the internet. <laughs> Pre-Facebook, <laughs> Twitter. You know? It's like amazing. You know? But even then, you know, it's like, you know, it's like actually one of the reasons, I, I mean, I remember in my, my philosophy, uh, history classes, you know, it's like... Uh, uh, you know, Martin Luther nails his thesis on the door, and within a week it had hit hit, hit all Europe, right? Within a month, the whole the whole Western world was had had it because of the printing press, right? If it if he had written if he had pounded those things a year before, it would have taken it, it may have, the fire wouldn't have started, right? But now it happens like that, you know. And this and this is already the beginning of of of, of this uh, connection. Mm. Time has already come when man cannot record a thought without it reaching all corners of the earth. By merely physical means, we have come to touch with we have cut, come in touch with the whole world. So the future religions of the world have to become universal and wide. The religious religious ideas of the future must embrace all that exists in the world that is good and great, and at the same time must have infinite scope for further development. All that it was good in the past must be preserved and the doors must be kept open to the future additions to the already existing store. Religions must also be inclusive and not look down with contempt upon another, one another because of their peculiar ideas, particular ideas of God, because their particular ideas of God are different. In my life, I have seen great many spiritual, I have seen a great many spiritual men, a great many sensible persons who do not believe in God at all. That is to say, not in our sense of the word. Perhaps they understood God better than, than what we can ever do. It's a very big statement. The idea of the personal God, the impersonal, the infinite, the moral law, the ideal man, all these have come under the definition of religion. And when religions have come, become thus broadened, their power for good will have increased a hundredfold. Religion, having tremendous power in them, have often done more injury to the world than good. Of course, I mentioned at the beginning, Swamiji so always points that out. Simply on account of their narrowness and their limitation. So exactly all the things that we complain about, I mean, we have really legitimate complaints about religion in the world. But you can always trace it back, Swamiji claims, to limitations. Narrowness and limitation. So it's like... Sometimes I think anything we just in our discussions here and our morning talks and you know in our talks amongst the devotees, any idea that comes is like if it's going to survive and be valuable it has to be has to be has to be universalized. And I think Swamiji, that you mentioned Sri Ramakrishna and the talk in America, you almost never talk. But that, I think this is a unique thing of Sri Ramakrishna. Things that were very um, 
book particular. He he showed their he he showed how their he universalized each one of them. Every idea was was taken to a universal perspective, right? And therefore, we valuable even now here. Even at the present time, we find many sects and societies with almost the same ideas, fight, with almost the same ideas, fighting each other because one does not want to set forth those ideas in precisely the same way as another. That we see. Therefore, religions will have, will have to broaden. Religious ideas will have to become universal, vast, and infinite. Then alone will shall we find the fullest play of religion. For the power of religion has not only just begun to manifest itself in the world. It is sometimes said that religions are dying out, that spiritual ideas are dying out in the world. To me, it seems that they have just begun to grow. The power of religion, broadened and purified, is going to penetrate every part of the human life. So long as religion has in the, what, so long as religion was in the hands of a chosen few of the body of priests, it was in temples, churches, books, dogmas, ceremonials, forms, and rituals. But when we come to the real, spiritual, universal concept, then and then alone, religion become real and living. It will come out. It will come into our very nature live in our every moment, penetrate every pore of our society, and be infinitely more powerful for good than it has ever been before. What is needed is fellow feeling between the different types of religion. Since they are all, stra- since they are all strands, strand, so, what is needed is a fellow feeling between the different types of religions, since they all stand or fall together a fellow feeling which springs from mutual esteem and mutual respect and not the condescending, patronizing expressions of goodwill unfortunate in vogue with many at the present time. And above all, this fellow feeling is needed between types of religious expression coming from the study of mental phenomena, unfortunately even now laying exclusive claim to the name of religion and those expressions of religion whose heads, as it were, are penetrating more into the secrets of heaven, though their feet are clinging to the earth. I mean the so-called materialistic science. It's a very strange sentence, but Swamiji is pointing out that, that just like we, we, we have to, the way we treat religion, we have to treat science. They're also searching, searching for the truth. You know, so it's, it's, uh, uh, Swamiji always, not only were religions not contradictory to each other in one sense, but religion is not contradictory, not, uh, doesn't contradict science and religion are not are not enemies. Also, they have they have to find that same goal. Final paragraph: To bring this harmony, both will have to make concessions. Sometimes very large, nay more, sometimes painful, but each will find itself the better for the sacrifice and more advanced in truth. And in the end, the knowledge which is confined within the domain of time and space will meet and become one with that which is beyond them both. When the mind and the senses cannot, where the mind and the senses cannot reach the absolute, the infinite, the one without a second. I told you he 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 revs up at the end, you know. So this is where today is tomorrow. Some of you can his birthday by the date. That's why we we decided to read. This is a talk. Many people came late. Uh, um, or I talk. You you guys came proper time. I came. I'm talking late. Uh, um, called is religion necessary necessity of religion from jnana yoga any questions or comments what time do we have we're okay we have one minute so no problem <laughs> i can so no bad okay well, well we'll do that then. Yes, so what do we do when 
the people who really believe their own religion yeah. mm-hmm. uh, support it to the extent that no this is the one so do we argue with them or just say well that's the th- well the thing is sometimes arguing will arguing help you know very very rarely with somebody who has a, an argument like that usually doesn't um convince anybody yeah right so uh, but yeah that's a very good very good question <clears throat> swamiji was quite radical on these points there's another point and very fascinating seen in at the, another lecture called um towards the universal religion or something like that or one of these also at the very end of Gyan Yoga. This is the first talk of Gyan Yoga. It's the final talk in Gyan Yoga. You can look it up. Where he said, oh, I met, I met, a, I met a, a Mormon. He tried to preach to me mm-hmm. about Mormonism. Mm-hmm. And he said, at that time, Mormon's church was before. It's, it's, it's um, um, like, it used to have, you preach aggressively. Then people, men should have many wives and mm-hmm. stuff and stuff, right? As a mandate, not just now it's, it's been uh, changed. That law, the rule has been changed. And Samaji would say, well, it's like, oh, you see, I'm a monk. I've chosen to have no wife. And your religion requires you to have many wives to go to heaven. Right? So I'm sorry I'm not that interested in your religion. You know, like just on that. You know, not, but you should come to India and preach. It's like, what? <laughs> like, yes, there's many people there. Maybe, you know, maybe people, there are people in India that all the religions available to them, maybe they're not happy in any of them. Right? You know, maybe Swamiji was being, he's, he's making a big point. Maybe he didn't actually want encourage missionary but actually there's people maybe that this is what they need this is what they maybe because of this you'll find you will preach an ideal that they will like and because of that they'll find their spiritual home and they can make spiritual progress and and, 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 you know it's like very interesting you know rather than fighting you know his but that's a certain mood of some people other people he'd also he could you know and even make a statement he just you know, he knew how to. <laughs> he, was, he, was a, he was a good. He was a strong-minded person and a, and a sharp-tongued person, mm-hmm. right? But usually, he didn't. He didn't. The, the, the arguing about these, arguing at that level of religion has not much value. But I found when people make statements, when you make statements like that, and you say, "Well, this is," the, if you simply point out that another religion or like, or like "Oh, we have a similar thing," yeah. right? And you say, "Oh," I remember, like, an example. I was at a at a at an interreligious dialogue uh, thing at a high school and it was like you know the you know the the, the a rabbi and a minister and imam and a, a swami and a, you know this type of stuff in yeah. line and and they, and and there were questions um uh uh, uh <coughs> i forgot where i forgot where i was going so <laughs> the yeah yeah on the same speech. yeah yeah i think about the buddhist he said when he played god yeah, I already forgot. No, no, that, you know, you know, that, yeah, that's a different story. I lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Uh, 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 totally lost my train of thought. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, I forgot my train of thought. Sorry, my uh, brain you're, is. You're saying we also have something similar in our. Oh yeah. Oh no. So at, at, in between sessions, the the the, the uh, very nice lady who was uh, representing Islam, she was a, uh, and she and she the other says so because you kept using you kept using the word God. Mm-hmm. Says Hindus believe in God, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's like of course the idea of God is not identical. You know, it's like you know, but but like well, yeah, of course we believe in God. I mean, I mean but even like like oh, you you guys, she went her life thinking that Hindus don't believe in God, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so it's like oh, we have a different con- we have a different conception, many and multiple conceptions of God, mm-hmm. right? But it's like it's like with there with a lot of similarities. And so Swami Baskar now Swami Prabhudananda, he's now expired. Revered Swami, he was the head of the Vedanta Society. I'll end with this. 
end of the Vedanta Society, uh, the Vedanta Society in San Francisco. Every year they have a big um, uh, retreat at Olima, maybe on Labor Day or something, Memorial Labor Day. It's usually like a, a inter-religious theme, right? And they usually invite, they have their own program, and then the, the big, I mean, like thousands of people come. It's a huge project. You know, the neighbor, people come all over, neighborhoods come. And, uh, they, and they always invite a speaker from another, like a Buddhist monk or a Christian priest or something like that, to be the keynote speaker, right? The final speaker will be like that. And he always gives the first speech, the Swami. He's always given the exact same first speech. I went four times years, he always gave the first. And it always something like that, is that religions have many things in common. And religions have many things different, right? So we shall first discuss amongst ourselves the things we have in common. If we run out of those, we can switch to things we have in difference. I don't think we'll run out of run out of them. I think this will fill the time, right? Mm-hmm. So they focus on that. So I think that's the easiest, most respectful way. Yes. Noticing there's differences, but there's a lot of similarities, mm-hmm. and we emphasize those similarities in friendship and dialogue. I think it's probably the best way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tatsat. Okay, with that RT. <laughs> See, final thing was not meant to be recorded, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Too esoteric. <laughs>